Hello and welcome to HemeCast for what is a Rare Disease Day special. So we talk about haemophilia all the time, which is in itself a rare disease. But within the global bleeding disorders community, we have patients or people who have even rarer conditions. And today we're going to focus on one which is called Glansman's thrombosthenia. Now I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Catherine Ray, who is going to talk about her current interest in Glansman's, why she's so interested and where we think we might be going with some new and exciting research coming soon. Hi Catherine, would you mind introducing yourself to the audience? My name is Catherine Ray. I'm a consultant working in the NHS as a blood or haematology doctor. I've always had a particular interest in helping people who have bleeding and clotting disorders. And during my training, I was involved in research in this area and working in a specialist blood disorders unit. So that is where my interest in working with HEMAP has gone. I also work for a company called HEMAP, where we, which has been set up with the aim of developing new treatments in bleeding and clotting problems. Right. And so today we're going to focus unusually, I think, not on haemophilia, which we probably talk about all the time, yeah. but on Glansman's thrombosthenia, which is a great, huge, long word. Uh, would you explain what that is? Yeah, I'll try to. Glansman's <laughs> thrombosthenia, it's an inherited bleeding condition. With it being inherited, this means that you, there's a message carried in your DNA, which is a bit different. And the result of that message means that the blood doesn't clot normally. So in Glansman's thrombosthenia, it's the platelets that don't stick together properly to form a clot. And uh, platelets are important cells that circulate in the bloodstream are really central to forming blood clots. And it's a rare condition, as you alluded to just then, there are very few people around with Glansman's thrombosthenia, which is why we don't tend to talk about it a great deal. We estimate about one in 400 to one in 500,000 people worldwide are affected by it. And is there, you said it was inherited, so is there an increased risk if you've already got it in your family? Yes, there is. So it's what we call an autosomal recessive condition, another big long word. And that means that you have to inherit two copies. So one from your mum and one from your dad to be affected by the symptoms. And so families where people are known to have the condition, which is in the DNA, so there is a, a higher chance of people inheriting at least one copy of the gene. And so then as a carrier of Glansman's, like we would talk about being a carrier of haemophilia, are those people affected as well? No, they, they don't tend to have symptoms. It is a, a recessive condition. So you do need to have the two copies to have the symptoms of the, the condition, which is it's bleeding. And, and where is that bleeding from? Is it like haemophilia joint bleeds or is it different? It's slightly, it's a slightly different range of symptoms and I think, excuse biology lesson, but I think it might be really helpful for us to go back a step and talk about normal blood clotting, then talk about what happens in Glansman's thrombosthenia because it might make all the symptoms make a little bit more sense. If we think about what normally happens in blood clots, if you bump yourself or cut the skin, there's an injury in the blood vessel and the platelets, those cells that go around in the circulation, they recognize that injury and stick to it quite quickly. Having stuck to it in the normal situation, those platelets have protein receptors on the surface. If you can imagine those like flagpoles that stick up off the surface of the platelets, between those flagpoles, you form protein links and these pull those platelets together to form a nice plug and that stops 
the bleeding. In people with Glanzmann's thrombosthenia, it's one of those protein poles that's missing, something called glycoprotein 2B3A. And as a result, although the platelets might stick to the injury, they don't pull together and you don't get that platelet plug. And without the platelet plug, there's more bleeding. So people get increased bleeding symptoms. And so that explains the symptoms that people with glanzmosomacenia get, which is often um, bruising in response to, to small injuries. So for example, excessive and extensive bruising of the skin from small injuries, or maybe they were deemed notice an injury, uh, frequent bleeding from the nose or the mouth, again, with minimal injury, like brushing your teeth or eating something. And those symptoms are very similar to people with von Willebrand's disease, which you might have, which your listeners might have heard of. It's one of the more common bleeding disorders. However, beyond those symptoms as well, patients can get other types of bleeds, like patients with haemophilia, they can experience bleeding into joints and muscles or where it's less common. So they have symptoms that are similar to both von Willebrand's and haemophilia, but the bleeding into the joints and muscles is less common. And because this is autosomal recessive, that means that women are equally likely to be affected as men or boys and girls. Yeah, exactly. And that's, and I think that's probably one of the, the differences that might surprise people. I think when I talk to people about my job, they go, oh yes, the bleeding disorder, that's the one that affects boys, isn't it? And I think haemophilia is well known and well publicized, but yeah, you're right. This isn't anything to do with the, the gene that determines what sex you are at birth. This is on a different gene. So you, both men and women can inherit it equally. How do you then diagnose Glanzmann's? That is, yeah, that is, <laughs> that's a, it's a difficult one because first of all, I think start, you have to recognize that somebody has the symptoms of Glanzmann's and I'm sure patients who are listening, people who are listening with red bleeding disorders can, will tell you that that's difficult in itself when, when the patient themselves or parents or carers aren't familiar. So the first thing is recognizing that there are abnormal symptoms that don't fit the pattern. Having recognized that there is no simple test for glanzosomosthenia. And so the normal coagulation blood test that we send off in any hospital, they won't necessarily pick up any problems for a patient with glanzosomosthenia. You need to have specialist tests. Now those will involve either looking for that protein flag on the surface of the platelet that we were talking about or it will involve testing how your platelets function. So triggering their activity and seeing if your platelets stick together normally in a laboratory in the test tube. Or also genetic testing. So they're quite specialist tests to make the diagnosis. Once, of course, somebody's recognized that there's a problem and thought about Glanzmann's thrombosemia as a, a potential cause, then your next step is to get to those specialist tests. So I think from my clinical experience, it's relatively easy in inverted commas to suspect it once you know about it yeah. particularly if you're seeing very little children with nosebleeds and petechiae and unusual bruising yeah but actually one of the girls that I did diagnose was 16 and her first presenting bleeding symptom was when she started her periods so why do you think there is that big kind of range of symptoms I think that is a Really interesting question. I think it's something that we're not, we, we don't quite know enough about. I wonder if in retrospect, if you, if that 
girl had been asked the right questions at the right time, she would have actually said, yeah, I've had lots of bruising and compared to my friends, it isn't normal. But I think sometimes we don't, we, we dismiss some of the symptoms that are associated with glansomous thrombocenia and we can miss it because we can't, we, we tell people, oh, it's just a bit of a bruise. Off you go, or it's just a bit of a nosebleed. Yeah, some people get frequent nosebleeds. And we're not very good at recognizing that actually that is a significant symptom. And um, I, I think from speaking to patients and parents recently that in retrospect, people do have symptoms. But of course, when it's flagged up is when you get something very significant, like heavy periods that are resulting in anemia and somebody becoming quite unpotentially with that. Yeah, I think you're right there because I'm thinking about her now. She was of African descent, so she had very dark skin. And so actually it's really not easy to see bruising and petechiae in people that are not Caucasian. So it's very obvious when you're very fair-skinned, isn't it? And I, I, I think talking to some parents of toddlers recently, they've talked about their children complaining of aching in their legs and difficulty walking when they weren't obvious large bruises, maybe a few bruises that you get from being a toddler and bumping into things. But yes, yeah, so talking about things that weren't obvious bleeding symptoms, but weren't quite right in retrospect. And most toddlers don't take themselves off in front of the TV with a sore leg for a day or two. So I think there's a lot more for us to think about and learn. And I did start off with this characteristic description of what's glands and thrombocenia. And that was from my experience of treating just a, a few people in my career, which has been the, the surface bruising, which can be spectacular and heavy periods and nosebleeds. But actually there's, there is a range of symptoms. They don't all fit neatly into a category. And I think, yeah, as we're talking to more people, we're, we're learning a little bit more about that range of symptoms and how it can quite a different presentation in one person versus the next. And I think that level of pain in small children is really quite interesting. So thinking back to boys with haemophilia before they start on prophylaxis, suddenly they start on prophylaxis and they become different, they're happier. And so maybe they are have some degree of pain that is then normal because they don't realise it isn't normal. Yeah. So obviously in those boys with haemophilia, we're now able to start prophylaxis early uh, and hopefully yes. reduce that pain. How are we able to treat people with Glansman's? This is a, this is a difficult. There are no specific treatments for people with Glansman's thrombocenia. So there's certainly things that we can do to help with the bleeds. For example, nosebleeds or surface bruises, compression and ice can help relieve the symptoms at home. There's some people use arnica cream for the bruises. So there's that first aid element. Um, Something called tranexamic acid can be useful with small volume bleeds. That's usually taken as a tablet up to three times a day. And the effect of that is it firms up the clot and stops your body breaking down clots. So if you've made a clot and despite your poor functioning platelets, you'll at least hold on to it. And so that uh, prevents you getting rebleeds. For bigger bleeds, um, for example, if you have a nosebleed that just won't stop with first aid or it's going on and on, there, you can come into hospital and have a platelet transfusion. So that's donated platelets from somebody else uh, and they function normally. So for a while, you'll have platelets in circulation that can group together, stick and form a clot. And that's really been the mainstay of treatment for Glansman's thrombocenia. And then another option is for uh, intravenous drug called recombinant factor 7A. Now, recombinant factor 7A is, is a 
artificially made protein. It's the 7A protein. It's one of the blood clotting factors. And it's been reported that if it's, it's administered regularly to people with a severe bleed with glands and thrombocenia, then it can reduce the bleeding and uh, reduce the time to clot formation for them. Then on top of that, there's supportive treatment. So of course, painkillers for people who have sore limbs and their blood transfusions, if people have a very severe bleed, but again, with donated blood cells or iron tablets. And for specific symptoms, so for women who are experiencing heavy periods, we often treat them with the contraceptive pill to reduce the frequency of periods or their uh, intrauterine devices to help reduce the flow. So there are things that can be done to improve the symptoms or to treat bleeds. But there's nothing really to stop bleeds from happening. All of this is reactive. These are all things that have that we do once the bleeding has once the bleeding has started and to try and, and keep control of it. But unlike people with other bleeding disorders such as hemophilia, uh, there's nothing that we can do to prevent bleeding at the moment. I know of a couple of children who went down the bone marrow transplant route. And yeah. I know also that at EHC uh, this year, there was something mm -hmm. about gene therapy for Glansman's. Yeah. Do you think those are treatment options that will come more to the fore in the future or are they just for the most severe of the severe, if you like? So thinking about bone marrow transplants, I, I, people have probably heard about bone marrow transplants in the context of treating cancers. That's when they're most commonly used. So just a quick explanation that when we do bone marrow transplants, you take the patient and you give them treatment to kill off their own bone marrow that makes their blood cells. And then you give them donated healthy uh, bone marrow cells that make a new blood system. And in the case of treating cancers, that should be a cancer-free bone marrow and they should regenerate those cells to have healthy blood circulating. So it's the same principle in Glansman's thrombocenia that the patient needs to be treated to knock down their own bone marrow. And then they have a donation from somebody who doesn't have Glansman's thrombocenia and those blood producing bone marrow cells should produce normal platelets and thereby effectively cure them of the Glansman's thrombocenia. So it sounds like a great option, but it's quite an arduous and dangerous procedure. So it involves like, toxic drugs to make the body accept the donated bone marrow. And that's both at the time that you're having the transplant and for after to stop the body rejecting it. So there's a high risk of complications, both at the time of having a transplant and afterwards. And it is a very difficult treatment for people to undergo with a lot of side effects. So my feeling is that really will remain reserved at present for the most severely affected individuals in the absence of anything better, then some people really are forced to go down that route. If you've got very severe, uncontrollable symptoms, then it is an option, but it's not one that people will take. So my feeling is that that's not going to become more widespread and will remain reserved for people who don't have other options. The gene therapy is really interesting, isn't it? I was listening to that talk and yes, what it would be, uh, this is where we have a more targeted replacement of the gene that's missing. So rather than replacing the whole bone marrow with a donated bone marrow system, then you just insert the missing gene. The difficulty with this is that it's 
quite early in the technology development. There is a lot to be done for this sort of technology to bring it through to clinical trials and into the clinical setting. So although it looks really exciting, I don't think this is going to be an option for people soon, but it's certainly something to be keeping an eye out on the horizon. And I said from haemophilia and gene therapy trials, we've learned an awful lot, which will really help promote new programs and you can learn from what's come before. But we've also learned that it wasn't a quick fix. There have been a lot of bumps in the road to, to develop these sorts of products and investigations are still ongoing many years down the road. So certainly something to look out for and, and hope for the future. But I don't think patients listening today are going to be able to go to their clinic anytime soon to ask for that as an option. Yeah, I agree with that. And I also think it'll be interesting to see whether that was a condition where we offer gene therapy to children, because we don't do that for people with haemophilia at the moment. So that will be an yes. interesting yeah. thing to keep your eye on for the future. Yeah. So from what you've said so far, it sounds like having glandulins has a big impact on the affected individual, but also it's very unpredictable and therefore must be impacting on family members too. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's probably something that we have underestimated as, as part of the work I've been doing recently, as mentioned at the beginning, uh, I'm developing it more and more of an interest in glansman's thromosthenia and, and treatments. And I've been talking more and more to, to parents and relatives and whereas in other bleeding disorders like haemophilia, we have taken time and, and researched the impact that this has on all wider family. Glanton's on the scene, I think by virtue of it being so rare, we haven't gone and asked those questions. We haven't asked carers and relatives, what's the impact of this on you? And I think we tend to label it as, oh, a few bruises, a little bit of nose bleeding. There isn't a particular, you just go away and cope with it. There's not a great deal we can do for that. And um, there's unlikely to be an impact on the family, but what's been striking to the from the parents I've been seeing too is quite how substantial the anxiety is, the social impacts of having those symptoms. Yeah, it's quite a striking effect on the family. And I'm thinking about not just around the time of diagnosis and the anxiety that induces and having to explain to friends and relatives, but on a day-to-day -day basis, managing a child who has frequent bruising, how to explain that to friends, family, and, and wider society, how to change day-to-day -day activities or what you might plan to do as your family, as a family to accommodate their symptoms or possible treatment. So I don't think I have a, a I don't have a scientific answer. I can't refer to a study or papers that tells you there's, the, there's a wider impact, but from speaking to families, I was struck by how much time and energy is spent on planning the day to accommodate, making sure the child doesn't have an injury that they need treatment if required, that maybe changing activities. Some families avoid sunny holidays and trips to the beach because they don't want to explain how, the, how these bruises or, or get that look that you get from people on the beach when you're unveiling a child with severe bruising down their legs. And I think that fits very nicely with a, a family that I looked after when I was at Great Allah Street who were from Pakistan. And all that they wanted to do was to be able to take their child home to meet the rest of the family. And of course, 
that's not exactly a condition where we'd say, yeah, off you go for six months, take your treatment yeah. with you. You can't. It's different and it's more complicated, I think. Yeah. So there's not the treatment there that you can use. It's not, we can't even send them off with their factor concentrators. You can with families, with children with haemophilia, with the education. And there's also not the understanding. You will, you can go a long way before you meet a doctor or a nurse who's actually treated patients with glands and thrombophilia. And there's not the infrastructure. It's not the same infrastructure around. Just say there's not the, uh, the same support network that patients with haemophilia and other bleeding disorders have internationally. You can't find out where your nearest center is and somebody with expertise in globally as you can with other bleeding disorders. So it's, it's even missing that, that patient support. Uh, and I know there are groups out there, but it, they're just, it's less established and maybe less supported than in other bleeding conditions. I suppose that shows us that you know, being rare within a rare condition means that you don't necessarily get the same support and care that the less yeah. rare people with rare bleeding disorders get. And maybe we need to be much more focused and much more aware of what's happening for these individuals. Yeah, I think from my own experience as well, because if, you, if you've had one patient to treat or two patients to treat with glands and thrombocenia, as a clinician, that really colors your opinion as to what that condition is like. So that one or two, before I started doing this work with you guys, those few patients that I had treated or, or seen treated by senior colleagues in the past had really formed my opinion of what it is to have glands from a senior and what it is to live with it. We don't have a good representation of a wider population and I think, as we've been saying, it's different from individual to individual. And as yes, as individual patient treaters, we form our own quite narrow perspective. And I think that we need to do a little bit to correct that with each other and try and form a wider representation of what it is to live with glands and thrombocenia and the variety of symptoms, the variety of impacts it might have. We now know that men and women can get clansmen. So presumably the bleeding for women is worse when they start having periods and thinking about having children. Do you have any yeah, experience I, of that? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. In, in haemophilia, your work has, your recent work has overcome uh, some of the, the historical inaccuracies about women not bleeding with haemophilia, but in Glands and thrombocenia, the link is more obvious because men and women are genetically affected equally. And of course, women have a biological uh, burden of menstruating every month unless they're on hormone treatments or, or postmenopausal. And this can be a significant problem for women with glands and thrombocenia. So they can get very heavy periods. And this can have a, a number of effects. So I have. Uh, spoken to a patient who had uh, not only had heavy periods where she was changing sanitary protection every hour to cope through the day and the level of disruption she had was enormous, not just during the day and trying to sort out family life, but get to the shops, but also to work and it disrupted her sleep and the impact was uh, really substantial. So that's the, the social impact. And then on top of that sort of heavy bleeding can quite rapidly result in severe anemia and the need for constant iron replacements. Often it's not sufficient to just take tablets and women need to attend hospital for intravenous iron or even red cell blood transfusions. 
So yes, menstruation can have a significant impact both socially and medically on women with glandulins from senior. Now there's lots of treatments out there. There are lots of things that we can do to improve the situation. Tranexamic acid that we mentioned earlier can reduce the flow for some people. And if the bleed is very severe on a particular day, then there's always the option to plate the transfusions or pump seven, eight, and we can prevent menstrual bleeding, whether that's with a coil device and um, in the uterus or implants or running packs of the oral contraceptive pill together to try and prevent people ever having a period. So there are things that can be done to control those symptoms, but they don't suit everyone. So hormone treatment does have its side effects. It's not for, for every woman. And some women will want to start a family. They'll want to have children and will need to come off these sorts of treatments in order for that to, to happen. It's something that can control symptoms periodically, but it's not always, uh, it's not always acceptable to the woman. It's not without its side effects and people will have times in their lives where they want to come off all of those treatments. I think the other thing we should not forget is just quite how horrible taking iron supplements is. And yes. it makes you feel yeah. sick or constipated or it gives you diarrhea or just to expect particularly teenagers to take iron yeah. supplements constantly is probably a, an ask too far. I think it's one of those things that I've certainly been guilty of as a clinician in the past. Oh, it's a simple fix. Off you go and take an iron tablet yeah. every day. And then why didn't you take it? <laughs> why didn't you take your iron tablet? Yeah. That's why you're anemic. Very simple to write a script and actually to be on the other side and take it. It's very difficult. Yeah. Again, with the contraceptive pill, it's very simple. will solve it all. Off you go and take it. But bloating, weight gain, or, or whatever somebody's personal side effects are, it, it's not easy. And it's not easy to ask a young person to take a tablet every single day, as you say. And of course, with the iron tablets as well, which can cause horrible diarrhea, it affects the absorption of some of the other mm -hmm. treatments. Tranexamic acid is another one. Again, very easy to sign that script off, but a lot of people after a couple of days of use will get quite a nasty upset yeah. stomach from it. So yeah, there, there are lots of things that can be done. There are lots of combinations, but I think we underestimate. I've certainly been guilty of underestimating what I'm actually asking people to do, not just for a few weeks or a few days, but this is a, a lifelong condition. This is many years of having to manage these symptoms. And I think that women do need better solutions. So we've spent quite a lot of the last, I don't know, 20 minutes or so talking about the fact that even as experienced clinicians in treating people with glansmans, we actually really don't know very much about what it is like to live with it, either as an affected individual or as a family member. We're working together to try to do some quality assessments of what that's like. Would you like to talk a little bit about what we're trying to achieve here? Yes. So we, together with, with HEMLET, HEMABA, we're running together a project called the Glamsons 360 project, where we're going to be asking for involvement from patients and carers, uh, patients with Glamsons from the senior. Then we're going to ask for your experiences. So we're going to ask this about symptoms and your the medical aspects of having glomsomous thrombosthenia, but also 
trying to delve into how that really affects you and what that really means for your quality of life and your experiences and your family experiences. So, Kate, I'll probably ask you to describe the qualitative research in a little bit more yeah. detail. So that's definitely your expertise. So, yeah, we're going to, we're asking all of those of you that are listening, if you have any patients with Glansman's or if you are an affected person yourself and you're interested, then please get in touch with us. We'll give you the contact details a bit later. What we're trying to do is a survey using some validated questionnaires to look at quality of life and the impact of bleeding. And then we'll have some face-to-face -face interviews with people to talk about that daily impact, things that you don't even get in questionnaires. If your little children can't go to brownies because their brother has suddenly had a bleed, what impact is that and how do we capture that and how important that is for the family? Thank you very much, Catherine. I'm delighted that you're able to join us today to talk about your work in Glansman's. I'm very excited to be involved in this project. If you, as a person with Glansman's or a clinician who treat people with Glansman's are interested in joining us, then please do contact us. We're going for ethical approval for a qualitative study very soon and hopefully we'll be recruiting within the next few weeks. Happy Rare Disease Day. Thank you for tuning in and listening today. Finally, a thank you to our sponsors, CSL Bearing, Chugai, Roche, Sobi and Takeda, who make HemeCast possible. <laughs>